This is an RNZ podcast. This is the first time a government minister has visited Ukraine since the war began in February. In some of them you can see the points of the bullets. Pina Henare making multiple stops across Irping, a city half an hour out of Kiev. I asked how many people were here and they said 100,000. Within a matter of weeks they had evacuated 95% of the population. That was TVNZ's Europe correspondent May Heron on One News last weekend, reporting on the visit of our Defence Minister to Ukraine, the first official visit by any representative of our government since the Russian invasion there, and no simple trip. It was a tightly controlled operation to get here. We arrived overnight via a train from Poland. Today's schedule has been tightly controlled, tightly managed with high security. Don't forget we are still in a war zone here. Russian missiles are coming here on a daily basis. Now, selected media are always part of the plan for such secure and secret official visits, such as when Helen Clark popped up with Kiwi troops in Iraq 20 years ago and John Key in Afghanistan about five years later. Last August, Today FM's Tova O'Brien went to Ukraine too, with funding from New Zealand on air, which kept the purpose of that trip secret for the same sort of security reasons. And after interviewing President Zelensky, Tova O'Brien urged our Prime Minister to make the trip too. And last Tuesday, her morning radio rival, Mike Hosking, said that the Prime Minister should have done that by now. What was weird about that trip, though, was he was our first representative to visit the country. Why? And as a result, he was met by some underling, when really the person you want to meet, of course, is Zelensky. Why has our Prime Minister not met Zelensky? And Mike Hosking also went on to say we have an international obligation to play a bigger part in Ukraine's war. It's imperative, as it has been from day one, to be on the right side of history, and we barely are. Our contribution is timid, it is small, it is reluctant. Well, this week, Today FM's Rachel Smalley was beating the same drum about the Prime Minister in this question for Victoria University International Issues Specialist, Dr Geoffrey Miller. How do you think that will be viewed? Is it acceptable, do you think, to send a Defence Minister and not the Prime Minister? Yes, this was a surprise, wasn't it? Penny Henry uh, had been off to Kiev and there was a complete news media blackout of this until he had left the country. And I think that tells you everything about the security situation in, in Kiev right now in Ukraine generally. Last week was one of the worst weeks yet. But as Rachel Smalley herself pointed out on Today FM, the Prime Minister had other international business at the time in Asia, including a very significant chat with China's President Xi Jinping. Now that Asian trip and the APEC summit also meant that Ardern wasn't at the COP27 climate talks in Egypt and she copped criticism for that as well from ZB's Mike Hosking. So the climate for now will have to wait because of a cost of living crisis and votes. That trumps another soiree where little, if anything, gets done. Mike Hosking's verdict there on the latest global gathering on climate policy. Now, in the middle of this month, he criticised world leaders for travelling to COP27 by air and the delegates for hoovering up Wagyu beef while they were there. And when COP27 was winding up, he summed it up for his ZB listeners this week like this. Virtually nothing happened over the past two weeks, so I can sum it up reasonably simply. So they have agreed to the concept of a dedicated loss and damage fund so just they've, they've agreed to the concept. That's all they've agreed to. Uh, they haven't worked out who pays for it, how much is in it, how it gets distributed, who would get what, nothing. Just as an idea, do we sort of kind of agree with it? Yes, that was it. That was your two weeks' worth of negotiation. Well, Mike Hosking was right there. There was no agreement yet over what should count as loss and damage caused by climate change. 
or which countries and disasters actually qualify for the compensation. But it's still a significant agreement because some UN and Development Bank funding that already helps states facing loss and damage from climate change is not officially earmarked for that. And while the likes of the US and the EU have so far resisted the argument that rich countries should pay because of their emissions in the past, they changed their position at COP27. Now, Mike Hosking didn't mention any of that, though, when he asked his audience this. If you give people money that have suffered from climate change, does that in any way, shape or form address climate change? Or does it just say, soz, have some money? It's the weirdest thing. But actually, it's the same thing. And while some climate funding has gone towards adaptation and mitigation of future impacts, loss and damage funding is for damage that countries cannot avoid or adapt to. The COP27 agreement also calls for the funds to come from several sources rather than just relying on the rich nations to pay up. And while that didn't seem to impress Mike Hosking, the idea was welcomed by countries that the COP27 summit identified as particularly vulnerable. Tuvalu's finance minister, Sebi Painui, said this to RNZ Pacific. We have been calling for this fund for these past three decades. So it has been a long time coming. And finally, this COP has delivered what we have been calling for many, many years. So this is a major, major breakthrough and a victory for the Pacific Island countries. As we heard earlier, Mike Hosking told his listeners we have an international responsibility to Ukraine and we need to be on the right side of history on that struggle. But on climate change funding, in his words, the world doesn't give a monkey's what we do. Nothing wrong with highfalutin ideals. Just don't run yourself bankrupt in the process and don't delude yourself that the actions of a minuscule little island at the bottom of the world makes one jot of difference to anyone. Now, that reference to bankruptcy was what Mike Hosking said could be the effect of charging farmers for agricultural emissions under the Hewaka Ekenoa Climate Plan. And last week, on the last day of feedback for that, Jamie Mackay, the host of News Talk ZB's farmer-friendly rural show The Country, told ZB listeners this. As the groundswell guy said on the on the um, steps of Parliament today, what's the use of this if it drives 20% of sheep and beef farmers uh, off their farms or out of production? You know, yeah. uh, it's the old story. Do we starve or do we fry? Which is which comes first, the chicken or the egg? But charging for agricultural emissions is not really an either-or matter of freezing or frying or a chicken and egg situation. Indeed, if the climate gets too hot, it's fried egg and fried chicken and fried farms. But there, Jamie Mackay was talking to ZB's drive host Heather Duplessy-Ellen, who, just like Mike Hosking, also reckons our contribution to the Climate Change Loss and Damage Fund and COP27 itself was a waste of time and New Zealand taxpayers' money. So we're one of, like, about five countries. It's a handful anyway. It's only a handful of us who've put money in. But, you know, we've got loads of money, so that's why we could do that anyway. So, as I say, COP is a flop, absolutely. Now, it's not just News Talk ZB hosts who've been questioning whether big international gatherings on climate policy are really still effective. On RNZ's Morning Report, for example, University of Otago professor and climate finance and energy expert Ivan Diaz-Rainey told Kim Hill this. I think these conferences are, and these commitments are becoming less relevant and investors and, and the energy sector are starting to, to, to deliver transition. Whether it's fast enough to, to stop dangerous climate change is another question. But it is, of course, still governments and international bodies which set the rules and the boundaries within which those businesses operate. Hence, emissions charging for agriculture here. 
and Heather Duplessis-Allen on News Talk ZB seemed to think that this government had committed the country's last $20 million to that climate loss and damage fund at the cost of other national needs. For instance, interviewing a Hawke's Bay District Councillor last week about new homes being built on a flood-prone plain, Heather Duplessis-Allen said this. Kind of ironic because James Shaw just a few days ago announced $15 million to help other countries adapt to climate change, but he might need to announce $15 million to help us adapt to climate change at this particular suburb in Hawke's Bay. So I tell you what, if it's flood prone, they're going to build the houses and they might well have to relocate the houses. So yeah, spend some of that money here, James. Thanks very much. And she went on to say that money for that loss and damage fund should go to hiring nurses. And then the next day, she said early childhood education teaching was underfunded because of it. Giving money to countries on the other side of the world to be able to deal with climate change. How about you put some money into our kids? Because they need it. 20 away from six. But when Heather Duplessis-Allen talked about COP27 with someone who was actually there, business journalist Rod Oram, he told her she was wrong to claim New Zealand was in the leading pack of countries responding to climate change. Yeah, we're progressing really fast on things that are very important to us, like farming and agriculture. And then you look across the world, and it's just, it's had a wall, and it's really hard to get people no, on board just, here, just, isn't it? Um, New Zealand is a laggard. We've got all the structure in place, you know, Zero Carbon Act, Climate mm. Change Commission, everything else. We're not reducing emissions. There are countries that are reducing emissions far, far faster than But that. are they the we important countries, Rod? It. Yes, they are. Uh, the US is going to um, hit its targets of emissions reductions by 2030. The yeah. EU has increased its goal um, for 2030. Um, so, no, seriously, Heather, we are going backwards in New Zealand. I want to make that completely clear. And the same day, in the business hour of her show, a guy from the consultants KPMG told HDPA that support for sustainability was actually good business. We're ranking 38 out of 58 countries for our environmental, social and governance reporting. KPMG partner Ian Proudfoot says better reporting means we attract better talent and money, and he's with us now. Evening, Ian. And Heather Duplessis-Allen seemed surprised to hear KPMG's Ian Proudfoot say New Zealand was behind in this as well. What we're not doing is moving as fast as the countries we trade with, you know, the countries that talent comes to from New Zealand. However, the same day last week, Heather Duplessis-Allen told her listeners she had a bit of a win, tipping off the New Zealand Herald that repairs to the Oriental Bay Cycleway near where she lives in Wellington needed repairs costing $90,000. Cycleways would have a lot less opposition and grumpy ratepayers if they were just a hell of a lot cheaper. Don't believe it? Just ask the grumpy ratepayer who called the Herald. Me. Heather Duplessis-Allen. Can't even tell you how proud I am of myself to have created a newspaper story in the national newspaper. And she grilled the city council spokesperson about what she called the latest cycleway saga. You folks were coming to us and saying, "This is outrageous." You know, it's being it's being redone after just after only four years. I mean, four years is a long time in the central city for something to go unmolested, so to speak. Now, this week, TVNZ One News host Melissa Stokes struck a very different note on cycling and the climate and environment in a series of reports presented in part on her bike. And park the car, get on your bike and help save the climate, part two of our cycling series. And the following day, Today FM's Rachel Smalley reported back on an epiphany after having her first go on an e-bike. If you're in a bit of a grind, if you're a bit overwhelmed, if you're in a frump, just do what you can to get outside. That's what the last week's taught me. Take life outside, people. Get out in nature, breathe the air, empty the mind, soak it in. This really is the greatest country in the world. 
On TBNZ's Sunday show last weekend, reporter Tamati Rimini Sprout was in Moiraki reporting thoughtfully on land and marine life at risk from rising sea levels and warming water, and coastal communities and marae at greater risk too, which ended like this. Now, Te Runanga o Ngaitahu launched its climate change action plan earlier this year. The iwi is aiming for net zero emissions by 2050. A full embrace of renewable energy, protection of its mahinga kai or food resources, and a more resilient future for whānau. And before that, in the same programme, Sunday's Kristen Hall reported, without judgement but with scepticism, on younger Kiwis apparently choosing not to have babies because of the climate-changed kind of planet they fear they'll have to live in. But I think people really want an answer about why you're not having them, whereas it's like now it should kind of be going the other way, maybe. Is there any kind of tangible change that could happen that would make you comfortable with having your own children? I can't see it where we are right now. Now that reporting was timed not just with COP27 in mind, but also because that was the week that the planet's population of people was estimated to have topped 8 billion for the first time. But on the same Sunday show, there was also some less convincing content about sustainable housing, a three-minute spot hosted by Sunday journalist John Hudson. This is Business for Better, brought to you by Kiwi Bank. Proving sustainability and profitability can go hand in hand. Since 2009, Ockham has completed 800 apartments in Auckland. Ockham's all about urban regeneration. What does that mean? You know, I think the Auckland plan sums it up really well. Quality, compact city, that's what we're after. Now, if you were watching Sunday on TBNZ1 last weekend, you'd have seen that during the show and online. That sponsored content is on the show's page under the heading, This is Kiwi. But this is actually advertising. And if TBNZ becomes a new public media entity next year, it's surely in the public interest to stop stuff masquerading as current affairs like that. Now, Also on TV last week, Prime screened episode one of a three-part series called Brave New Zealand World, exploring how climate change and other threats could snuff humanity out. Climate change is a threat to us as human beings. What are we doing to our planet and New Zealand? An existential risk is one that actually threatens the survival of humanity. We know that if the nuclear winter comes, we freeze, we join the rest of you. Are we our own worst enemy? A challenging watch, though, if you missed it, it's only available now on Sky Go, the subscriber-only streaming service of Prime TV's owner Sky, even though you already paid for Brave New World via New Zealand On Air. Now, there have been no problems hearing for free, though, the opinions of the News Talk ZB hosts on climate change policy lately and any government attempts to address it, both here and globally at forums like COP27. A century ago, foreign ministers from all over the world spent up to six months in Paris at the peace conference trying to hammer out a way to avoid another world war. If they had talked radio back then, imagine the criticism the delegates would get for their train travel and the catering.